my lovely ladies, writers, and lady writers. Thais here. We're starting a new chapter of ladies who write off strong like the writer we are discussing today, Nisia Flores. With Nisia being the mother of feminism of the Pan-American women's movement, we're relocating ourselves today to 19th century Brazil. Still keeping in mind the deep cultural ties Nisia had to Europe due to Brazil being a colony of the Portuguese crown until 1822. In true ladies who write fashion, we are not only discussing the cultural and personal context of our writer today, but her political achievements and contributions to society inside and outside of the feminist movement. We're also providing a summary of her countless works, delving into its significance and its connections to other writers of her time. At the very end, we'll briefly critique her feminist approach. Now, before we go on to explore her work, I would like to highlight that because of the invalidity that women writers faced during the 1800s, she used many pseudonyms when signing her work. This was a positive at the time, as the ambiguity in the gender of the names she used allowed it to be better respected in both academia and the public. This technique may have kept her works relevant, but it did not age well as it divided them. Right now, Brazilian historians have identified 15 of her texts, but there are countless other Nisian treasures that are yet to be discovered. Now, let's start with historical context. The vibrant and liberal imagery that Brazil has today is very different from the one it upheld in the 19th century, whereas historian Gilberto Freire wrote in his review, Peace, conformity, and decorum in public affairs were the norm. We must note, however, that this norm was only established in the mid to 1800s when Nisia had already made a name for herself in the scholar community. The early 1800s was a time of progress and change in Brazil, and this is what we will be discussing now. Being born in 1810, Nisia was born precisely two years after the ideas of decolonization and independence started circling around the country. These ideas were most likely surfacing then, as it was around that time that Don Juan, a Portuguese monarch, evacuated to Rio de Janeiro, and established a council of state, a supreme court, a royal treasury, the Bank of Brazil, and many other fundamental institutions. Don Juan also increased Brazilian trade and profit by giving it various commercial freedoms, so needless to say, the country was starting to become financially and politically independent. Given that the monarch was living in the colony, Brazil eventually became recognized as equal to Portugal in 1815. But it was only under the rule of Dom Pedro, Dom Juan's son, in 1822 that Brazil truly became independent. This happened when Nisi was 12 years old. Independence is said to have established peacefully in Brazil, but that's not necessarily true. Tensions had been rising slowly between the Brazilian people who wanted independence and the Portuguese who wanted to stay true to the crown. In Pernambuco, Nisia's home state, there was an unsuccessful rebellion in 1817, planned by native elites whose main goals were Brazilian independence and the establishment of a republican government. This group echoed Enlightenment ideals of individual freedoms and nationalism that bore through Pernambucan society at the time. Now, I want to talk a bit about what Brazilian society was like when Nisia started to write her works in the mid to late 1800s. A few years after Brazil became an independent nation, it had an economic boom with an increase in agricultural production and exports. Several revolutions later and some financial stability, and it became a relatively peaceful country. Ruled by Emperor Dom Pedro II, the crown democracy of America was a hybrid of a hereditary monarchy and a republic. And being a former colony of Europe, a lot of Portuguese politics, literature, and journalism continued to be prioritized while Brazil was yet to formulate history as an independent country. 
Much like today, Brazil was economically divided with a class system, except it was a little different and a little less humane, going as follows. The ones with the most money were the land and slave owners, usually owning coffee or sugar plantations. Then came the petit bourgeoisie, made up of farmers, sailors, and shop owners. And then, at the bottom of the hierarchy, were the slaves. Slave labor varied from working at plantations to being cooks, at-home waiters, wet nurses, water carriers, footmen, and chambermaids. And a proper city house required all of these. Because of the large servantry, men outside within their society saw women as lazy and vain, becoming, in Frady's words, pampered idlers spending their days languidly in gossiping or at the balcony reading some new novel of Macedo or Alan Carr. Since women were practically house prisoners, risking prejudice if they went out without their husbands in tow, most goods were sold at the door by slaves of shopkeepers. The women, having an administrative role in the household, would decide what to buy and when to buy it. They would receive the merchandise and would overlook all of the household operations doing it themselves if they felt like it was needed. Despite the lazy title, Brazilians followed the standards of the good woman, who always had to keep herself busy in the household, be a great manager, and look presentable while doing so. The time also called for fragility, refinement, and poise in women, all the while it praised the indomitable man. Although Dom Pedro II, the leader at the time, did not condone this, a common state-man practice was using slave women to satisfy sexual desires, ones that they could not ask of their wives. Men would also take advantage of free colored women's disadvantage in society and promise them material rewards for sexual favors. So clearly, morality was thrown right out the window when it came to satisfying male needs. We've talked a lot about the role of women in the private sphere, now let's discuss women in public. Following the Romans, Brazilian women had no place in public life. There were rare exceptions for educated women, but otherwise they were represented by their husbands legally and socially. The men, on the other hand, were expected to participate in city life, especially the political discussions that they typically had at the plaza. In the spirit of Nisia spending her time in Europe during the late 1800s, we will now briefly examine the context of this time in Europe. Europe, especially France, was on a bit of a roll when it came to social justice movements, having just had a huge revolution sparked by inequality. So it is no wonder that women had a bit more of an active role in society. This role was, of course, still tied to the household a lot of the time, almost like an extension of the duties they had. They would work in accordance to what their husbands did. Otherwise, accessibility to tools, clients, and other necessities would probably be an issue. Had her husband been a farmer, the wife would have tended to livestock, gather its milk or eggs, and perhaps go into town to sell it. This would give women the chance to be seen without their husbands in tow, as an individual. Another thing that advocated for the individuality and the capability of women in Europe is that if their husbands died, they were not necessarily expected to find another man. Many widows, like Nisia in the late 1800s, would become the primary source of income for their household, managing farms, tending to vegetable gardens, and finding other ways to make a living. Women would also manage in-home cafes, cooking, cleaning, and serving all by themselves. Women's education in the 19th century in France was also kind of a hot topic. Schooling for women had become newly implemented, right at the end of the 18th century. So by the mid-19th century, many bourgeoisie girls attended regularly. This caused the French to unprecedentedly recognize girls' schooling as legitimate elementary schools. Lay schools, especially as the church was so against feminist progress, encouraged women to aspire to a life beyond the family. And that's what educated women did at the time, as education was a form of liberation from the domestic life they had planned out for them by parents and society as a whole. They would go on to write, publish, sometimes under male names or anagrams, and join political clubs for women. 
Seeing the birth of the first wave of feminism, the increase in literate women in Europe during the late 18th to 19th century propelled the fight for women's rights and brought up the works of Wollstonecraft, Austin, and D'Aubreville. Also, you guys will quickly realize that Nisia's life is very much always on the backdrop of revolutions. One of them was the People's Spring, a series of transnational revolutions in Europe in 1848, which happened just one year before Nisia moved to France in 1849. In it, the people of Europe were seeking political and structural reform as they were tired of the old conservative monarchical order that was reaffirmed by the Congress of Vienna. They wanted to separate states with their own constitutions, one that accounted for liberalism and fundamental rights. This movement in Europe reinforced the feminist agenda at the time, allowing women to fight alongside men for progress. But the progress that the women were seeking were a little different, tied to their own equality, legal recognition, education, and marriage freedoms like divorce. As a result of this, women's democratic clubs and some newspapers emerged all throughout Europe, including La Voix des Femmes. These newspapers seek to propel the goals of the first wave of feminism, which were as follows. The reformation of education and the institution of marriage, first and foremost. These were quickly followed by sexual morals, gender equality under the law, and women's inclusivity in the workplace. Now, as a fellow woman, the fact that these ideas were introduced so early on in Nisia's time but are not necessarily practiced or embedded in societal beliefs is rather telling. Now, let's go on to the context of the writer. All right, we are back. And now that we have thoroughly discussed the historical background of Nisia's time, we'll go on to discuss the context of the writer herself. Now, as we talked about before, Anisia signed her works with many different names, so her real name was a bit of a mystery for quite some time. We now know, however, that her birth name was Dionisia Gonçalves Pinto. The full name she went by, however, was Nisia Floresta Brasileira Augusta. Nisia is a shortened version of her last name. Floresta is the name of her family farm. Brasileira is translated to Brazilian, her ethnicity, as when living in Europe, she wanted to preserve her Brazilian identity. And Augusta is a reference to both her late husband and her daughter's names. Dionisia was born on October 12th in 1810 in Papari in Rio Grande do Norte, Brazil. To highlight the importance she had in the history of Brazilian women, we should note that Papari became known much later as the municipality of Nisia Floresta. Nisia was the daughter of Portuguese lawyer and a Brazilian homemaker. And because Papari was very rural and still very agriculturally based, she spent her early years in the family farm Sichu Floresta. There were no schools in the area, so our feminist writer and her three siblings were homeschooled for quite a while. Following the norms of the times, the three girls and their brother were educated differently. The brother presumably learned how to read and write early on, while the girls learned about agricultural and manual labor. When she was around seven, the Pernambuco riots, of which we talked about a bit before, broke out, with tensions rising between the Brazilian separatists and the Portuguese loyalists, being of Portuguese descent in the city of Papari presented some threat, especially for her Portuguese first-generation father. Now, amongst these unstable times, she was still able to join a school, but given the religious influences of the region, the school was based on Carmelite teachings. It was called the Convento das Carmelites. In the school, she was taught classics, literature, singing, and music, and she spent a lot of time in the library. So we can see that she valued education from a very early age. Now, as the riots continued, so did the political persecution of the family, causing them to take refuge in Goiânia in 1824. 
By then, she was already 14 and married to a man named Emmanuel Alexander Seabre de Melo. He was an old, rich proprietor, and the marriage was arranged by the family, of course, as it was commonly done back then. Nizia, fighting for her own marriage rights, abandoned her husband, going to Alinda with her family. Alinda was a very noteworthy place in Nizia's life, as it was where her father was assassinated, but also where she got remarried and had her two kids. It was also the birthplace of some of her earliest works. In 1831, just two years after her father passed, Nizia published a series of letters to a Pernambucan newspaper talking about the state and maltreatment of women in her time. It was also around then that her husband passed and that she attempts to move her family to Rio Grande do Sul to start an all-girls school, but yet another revolution foiled her plans. This time, it was the Ragamuffin War, fought in Rio Grande do Sul during the 1830s. It was a rather long and bloody war. Instead of going to the war-bound Hugo Sul, Nizia then opted to open her school, which she opened too, in Rio de Janeiro, naming one after her late husband, Colégio Augusto, and the other, Colégio Brasil, after the country. Despite being a founder, she also worked as a principal and a teacher within her own schools. A bit after the move, however, in 1849, Nizia's daughter Livia became seriously injured and had to go to Europe for medical treatment as Europe had progressed way faster scientifically. After traveling Europe-wide, she settled in Paris for a bit in 1850, but had to return to Rio abruptly to tend to her school, Collège Augusto. It was there that she published Opusculo Humanitario, which is a tool of articles about the oppression of women and the idea of education being a tool of liberty for them. This work is especially important because it gained recognition from Auguste Comte, the French father of positivism. From there, we aren't completely sure about where she resided, but we do know that she produced very influential works like Pages of a Dark Life, The Final Cry, O Pronto Final, and Thoughts, with Thoughts even being translated into Italian, spreading through the region like wildfire. Not much is known about what happened in her escapade to Brazil in 1872 to 1875, but we do know that she was in the Joaquim Nambuco campaign to abolish slavery. And it was precisely Nambuco's campaigns and speeches that propelled the abolition movement in Brazil. Her individual contribution to the abolition movement comes in the form of her work called Pages of a Dark Life, which we briefly touched upon, but we'll touch upon a little bit more in the next session. Diverting her attention back into the context of the writer, Nizia returned to France, specifically to Rouen in 1875, and wrote her final work entitled Fragment d'une vage inédite, Note biographique, which was published three years later. Nizia then died at 75 years of age in Rouen, becoming a permanent part of Brazilian history on the 24th of April of 1885. All right, we are back from the break and ready to discuss noteworthy works of the writer Nizia Floresta. So as we discussed, our writer's first ever published book was a series of articles written for the newspaper Espelho das Brasileiras, or Women's Mirror. It was in 1831, and in it she considers the status of women throughout history from early civilizations to her time. While studying these articles, writer Duarte identifies two reoccurring themes within them. The first being the sheer exploitation of women by men, and the second, how truly vital women are to society as a whole. As we know, in 1832, there was also the Direito das Mulheres e Injustiça dos Homens, and this text is one of, if not the most, influential work of hers. 
It is said to be a flexible translation and interpretation of both Mary Wollstonecraft's vindications of the rights of women and Olympe de Gage's Declaration of Rights of Women and the Female Citizen. It is a very important piece of work in Brazilian feminist literature as it is often cited as the work that pioneered the entire genre. She was the first, through this work, to demand complete equality for women in almost all domains of life, and independence from male guardians required in Brazilian culture. This equality, she believed, was not only achieved at the time because of a lack of education. In her mind, education was being monopolized by society as a useful tool of female oppression. In gaining access to education, women would have a stronger conscience or rationale, and it would become clear to them just how much they have been oppressed by their counterparts, and just how capable they are. In between this work and advice from my daughter, Conselhos à minha filha, published in 1842, Nisia wrote many articles for national and municipal newspapers. She often wrote of her schools and how important it was to teach girls, which diminished her school's credibility in the viewpoint of the very patriarchal society she lived in. She also wrote a lot about the revolutions and the politics of the time. Now let's talk about the Conselhos à minha filha, or the advice to my daughter. The sex was dedicated to her daughter Livia, but it was also considered a dangerously influential piece, as it suggested a reformation of society and the generational transmission of feminist ideologies. This was considered almost blasphemous at the time. Now, after the year 1842, which is when Conseil de Zemiafide was published, the year 1847 was a really productive one for our writer. In it, she wrote Dacis, or The Complete Young Woman, Fanny, or The Model of the Maidens, and Discurso que as suas educandas dirige a Nisia Floresta Brasileira Augusta. Now, we don't have a translated title for that last work, but we do know that this was a speech directed to her female students. We also don't know much about these works, but we do know that, like her earlier ones, they touched upon the topic of the education of women. The year 1847 also marked the birth of another work of hers called A Lágrima de um Caeté, or A Caeté's Tear. This term Caeté was used to describe the indigenous people of the area that she lived in, the area of Pernambuco up to the north northwest of Brazil. This was one of Nisia's longest pieces, and it was on the everlasting effects of colonialism and how degrading the Portuguese colonization of Brazil was, specifically to the northern tribes, like the Pernambuco Tupi. While analyzing the effects of colonialism, Nisia becomes one of the first authors, male or female, in Brazil to erase the images created of indi indigenous people as savages or unlawful human beings. Instead, she seeks to understand how the stereotype itself is a product of the Portuguese attempt in gaining full control. She then compared this colonization scenario to the Praeira revolts that had just started five years before. After 1847, most of her works were published in Europe, especially France. Now in 1850, Dedication of a Friend was published, and this caused a lot of firsts in Nisia's career. It was Nisia's first romantic novel and also her first published piece outside of Brazil, and it was her venture into the world of fictional literature, a world where she believed would be better to reach and shape younger generations. In true Flores the fashion, she sprinkled a bit of political and historical facts, and it became a historical romance of sorts. Now, after befriending the father of positivism himself, Comte, as we talked about before, 
and accepting his solidarity and humanity and people ideology, Nizia wrote her second most influential work entitled Opusculo Humanitari. This was published in 1853 and it was translated into the humanitarian booklet. Now this booklet once again considered the status of women and their education, but it took a less personal and more political and global approach. Now, of course, she tied her usual argument of morality, equality for both sexes is morally just, with a more practical argument of intellectual and thus socioeconomic progress being more achievable if we educate both genders. Nizia also compared Brazil's progress in regard to education of women and in general to various different continents like Asia, Africa, Europe, and North America. She pinpointed the things that she thought Brazil should adopt and also just how antiquated Brazil was. In it, she condemned the country for stating that they have a liberalist government that was in charge of a civilized group of people, and yet they refused to acknowledge half of the population as people worthy of education. In other words, she believed that the act of withholding education from a population was almost juxtaposed with this idea of being progressive and liberal as a government. These two couldn't happen not simultaneously. Now let's talk about the pages of a dark life. We don't really know when this was published, but we do know that there is so much significance in this work. Her contemporaries often cited religion as a legitimate reason for the enslavement of people of color. And she poses a different hypothesis that is rooted in anti-despotism. In a monarchical society, the middle class feels somewhat oppressed Thus, when the Portuguese middle class came to Brazil and started colonies, they became the kings of their own society, reclaiming their liberty, all while sacrificing indigenous and people of colors. On top of this argument, she also counter-argues the religious and biblical arguments for slavery with religious-based arguments of her own, stating that Christianity demands empathy for all, including people of color. She wanted to humanize the savage imagery of slaves of her time, just like she did with the indigenous people in the previous Lagrimas of Caete. Another really big argument for slavery back in the day was that black people were unable to form and provide for families, and that their homes would not be stable enough. Nizia counter-argued by stating that the only reason as to why this may be true is precisely because of the lack of opportunity and sheer oppression that they suffer and she was one of the first in her time to cite suicide and infanticide as legitimate reasons for the abolishment of slavery. Another big topic explored in these pages was the sexual exploitation of slave women, except Nizia took a view more congruent with her time. When talking about young boys and families exploiting slave girls, she did not blame the boys themselves but their fathers for teaching their children sexual perversion by example. Now it must be explored that Nizia, in the same text, blames young men for the exploitation of indigenous women, but not of enslaved women. Now this may be due to the belief that was going around at the time that black women were naturally more promiscuous, and thus the sexual acts, at least in their parts, were voluntary. Which was never the case. The power dynamic of these relationships at the time made it impossible for slave women to decline advances, and even if they did, there'd be no grounds for the complaint. Their voices were rarely heard because they had no legal status. They were not regarded as humans. And back to Nizia's work, 
Nisia's failure to identify the young men as the perpetrators is one of the two main critiques that we will be talking about on this episode of Ladies Who Write. But before we take a look at the second critique, let us take a look at the connections to her contemporary writers. Alright, we are back and we're going to now talk about the connections to writers, female writers, in her time. Now, there are three main writers that come to mind when thinking about Nisia's style of feminism, and those are Mary Wollstonecraft, which we talked a bit about previously, Catherine McCauley, a British feminist historian and writer of letters on education, and Madeleine de Scudery, a French philosopher that was extremely prominent in the 16th century. First thing that we'll compare and contrast the ladies on is their discourse on education. All three ladies, Wollstonecraft, Macaulay, and Floresta, were adamant on advocating for female education in times and societies where even the sheer idea of it was a threat to the social structure. Wollstonecraft was considered by some historians to be a big inspiration for Nisia, as had it not been for her radical reformist work in vindication of the rights of women, Nisia may not have had been as influential as she was. This is because if you remember the detail that we mentioned before about Direito das Mulheres e Injustiça dos Homens, or in English the rights of women and the injustice of men, possibly being a kind of untamed translation of Wollstonecraft's work. One of Wollstonecraft's big themes in Vindication is the idea of progress in a civilization being achieved through the intellectual involvement of all the people in a society. In other words, inclusivity in education benefits everyone, not only those who were excluded before like the women or the poor. We see this theme spread throughout all of Floresta's works, but especially in Gideitis. Another thing that we see is congruent with all these three authors is the fact that they all believe that there's a lack of moral education and an unnecessary emphasis on teachings of gentleness, sensitivity, and ornamentation. It seems that no matter where they resided, England or Brazil, women of the 16th to the 19th centuries were not only all objectified by men, but taught that this was the ideal. These three thinkers believe that the objectification being socialized onto women made them willingly fall prey to social slavery as there's no necessity for independent thinking when you're living your entire life for the sole purpose of pleasing a man. In doing this, they're digging their own liberty a grave, as when independent thought is muffled by societal expectations of marriage and raising a family, freedom dies. This ties into the discourse of morality and independent thinking in the context of education, and this is where we bring Descudery. All four thinkers, Wollstonecraft, Macaulay, Floresta, and Descudery, were concerned about morality. Of course, their definitions of such a concept were different. While Wollstonecraft, Macaulay, and Floresta advocated for an individual morality in which one got to know oneself and their own personal morals, Descudery advocated for an outward showing of morality, where you act morally towards another. Descudery wrote that you can only truly know yourself through scrutiny of one's social interaction under the rubric of virtue and vice, which, in my opinion, can be defined by society. Another parallel in Descudery, Wollstonecraft, and Floresta's work is the theme of the unjust acts of men against women. These themes are all over Nisia's Espelho das Brasileiras again and Direitos. And 
on page 90 of Illustrious Women, De Scudery suggests that men only obstruct women's education out of fear that women would surpass men in status. Nietzsche also placed the blame on men, who she believed wanted to stifle female progress to keep the status quo alive and stay in control. Now we will spend the final few minutes discussing the last critique on Nietzsche's feminist ideology. Alright, welcome back guys. So the critique I would like to focus on is Nietzsche's participation in what is known in feminism, especially Brazilian feminism, as good feminism. This meant that although Nisia advocated vehemently for rights of women in marriage and education, she still wished to keep women tied to the home in some ways. Now she embraced and seeked to maintain the image of women as mothers and motherly, tending to keep politics private, but ultimately prioritizing home life. In her work entitled Advice to My Daughter, Nisia states that it is mothers that hold true importance in society and that there's no better title. Now this ideology is harmful, as it makes women think that this is their sole purpose in life, when the reality is that the prioritization of a career or a political movement in a woman's life is just as important as their family. Of course, this depends on the woman. And truly viewing this topic in, in a macro lens, if you're a good mother to your children, you may live forever in their hearts, but if you're a good professional or activist, you may live forever in posterity, in history, like these women that we're talking about today. In reality, mothers, professionals, career-oriented mothers, they're all valid, all important, and all crucial to society. Take her writer Nisia, for example. A mother and a historical figure, she transcends the societal norms of her time, being remembered not only for being Livia's mother, but the first Brazilian feminist. So before rolling out, I just want to say thank you guys so much for sticking with me, for listening to this podcast all the way through. I would also like to inform you that a lot of the citations and information that I used are in the transcript. So if you guys want to check that out, uh, that would be amazing. And yeah, thank you guys. And I recommend you guys to go check out the other episodes because the people in this class are so incredibly hardworking and I'm sure the other episodes are amazing. Thank you guys once again for listening to the ladies who write and I hope that you got inspired by Nisia's story today. Mm -hmm.